The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI political science professor Jeff Kopstein. He is an expert on Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, the topics of the day, a self-proclaimed student of the region for over 30 years. He speaks fluent Russian and German, and I have been looking forward to this interview since the day that Russia invaded Ukraine, which was on February 24th. And please note that the date of this interview is May 2nd, 2022. So the war has been going on for about two and a half months now. Welcome, Professor Kopstein. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for being here. Before we get into the details of your expertise, can you please just tell us where you grew up and what you liked to do when you were a kid? I was born in a small town in Ontario, Canada, Chatham, Ontario, which is a small rural town near near Windsor, which is across the river from Detroit, Michigan. And I, then I moved to Toronto, and then we moved to California when I was in high school. What I liked to do when I was a kid, I was a pretty normal kid. I liked to read a lot, but I I was a I was a basketball player. I ran track. Um, I was just a, a very very typical kid, and kind of came to California when I was in high school, and then stayed. Yeah, whereabouts in California? Um, I went to La Jolla High School. <laughs> And uh, so San Diego, and yeah. then I then I went to Berkeley for my BA, MA, and PhD. I, I stayed there the, the, for all my higher education. Then I taught at Dartmouth College, and then I moved to the University of Colorado at Boulder, and then I moved to the University of Toronto, where I spent the largest part of my career before coming here. Uh, I spent twelve years there, and then seven years ago, I became the chair of the political science department at UC Irvine, and I did that for five years. Gotcha. So when did you start getting interested in political science? Well, it was in college and I was very, I mean, it was during the Cold War, during the the, the early 80s when I was in college. I started mm-hmm. in 1979 and the, the Cold War had really heated up again. Ronald Reagan had just become president mm-hmm. and I come from a Russian Jewish family. I was always interested in the problem of tyranny, the problem of communists and Nazis. And I'd taken a number of classes in that and I got totally hooked. And there was a professor at Berkeley who asked me to go to graduate school at Berkeley and work with him. And I was, you know, 
flattered and, and yeah. interested. Yeah. And of course, I didn't know what it meant to be a professor. Neither of my parents went to college. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they were pretty convinced that the campus interview was decisive. So I think I was the only person at Berkeley in the campus interview who wore a suit. Um, <laughs> and walking around hot day in a suit in Berkeley. Uh-huh. And yeah, I, I, got, I got very interested in that. And I, I tried to find out what it meant to be a professor, what it meant to do a PhD, what it meant to be a professor, how one became a professor. But before doing that, I went and spent a year in Russia as a visiting student, still under communism. I lived in a dormitory with a Russian roommate. And then I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe after that, that stay. And only then did I start graduate school. I started my PhD at Berkeley. Yeah. Wow. Any other specific memories of that time? What year in Russia were you there? Well, that was 1984. I was in mm-hmm. Russia for my first time, first extended stay. I've been back you know, a lot of times since, mm-hmm. um, including the last time I was in the region was in 2019, just before COVID. I was in Belarus and my, I'll talk about this, my grandfather's hometown uh, called Novogrudek. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, lots of crazy times, uh, really wild times. I ended up writing my dissertation on East Germany and I spent time in communist East Germany. I spent a night in a, in a Stasi prison. Um, 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 I didn't mean to end up there, but they they arrested me for no reason at all. And I was in Berlin when the wall fell. Um, Oh, wow. Oh my God. That was an an amazing time. Yeah, that's incredible. I actually was um, backpacking Europe in uh, in 1977, and I just got a, a kind of a wild idea to go to East Germany. And I called up, and I but you needed a visa or something, right? And so I called the embassy, and I just remember the uh, official who I talked to, who seemed kind of official, just yelling at me like, "What do you think this is? A, a tourist destination?" And just like, "Well, I guess they don't want me to come." So uh, yeah, it was wild. Um, they were. It was that was the most buckled down of all the communist societies, I thought, because they had that strange combination of kind of communist um, rhetoric or communist rhetoric and dictatorship, but combined with a kind of a German thoroughness. Yeah. Yeah. At least the, 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 under the Russians, the Soviets, they were, they were communist and it was dictatorial, but it was ultimately kind of sloppy. And so that made for a lot of, there were lots of loopholes in the system. And if you just didn't say anything, um, you know, there was an expression in Russian, if you really want to do something, but it's forbidden, you can still do it. Um, (laughs) And that that really summarized, they had no such expression like that in in East Germany. As a matter of fact, one time I went crossing through from West Berlin to East Berlin, from capitalist democratic West Berlin into communist East Berlin, and a border guard. I, my German was okay at that time. Yeah. And a border guard asked me, well, how do you say to somebody politely in English, spread your legs? And I said, I'm not sure there's a polite way of asking that, <laughs> that question. Yeah. Uh, but they, they were thorough. And, and, you know, years later, friends of mine, you know, people admitted when they had to write reports on me. I had an advisor in East Germany who had to write a, you know, an academic advisor. And he had to write reports on me. That was a condition. And uh, years later, my, my old Russian roommate from 1984, I'm now Facebook friends with him. He's actually, a, you know, he's a Putin backer and he was a Trump backer. So we didn't always agree on everything, but uh, I stayed Facebook friends with him. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So do you still have a lot of contacts in Russia? You know, do you, have you spoken to them? I, I, I understand that 
many of them just feel that the war is justified and they're all for Putin. They do. And I, I not all, but I, the people who I'm still friends with today, apart from my old Russian roommate, who I once in a while will troll each other, I'll say, no, how's it going? How's that working out for you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but it's mostly half joking. The people I'm still friends with are, of course, academics. Yeah. And most of my academic friends are, they're against the war, but they do it in a very kind of, you know, sotto voce and a very quiet voice. Right. And, um, you know, to get to be out there um, and, you know, intentionally oppositional, very vocal right now, mm. it's dangerous. Yeah. You not only can lose your job, you can lose your freedom. And you know, this is this is the real thing. I mean, losing your freedom. Think about it. You have a family, right. you have friends, you have a life and to lose everything for this right now. It's not obvious to be, that people will, will head down that road. That may come, but it, I don't think it's really come yet. Yeah. Can you give us a brief history of, say, from 1900 of the Ukraine, Russia, Belarus? Because I was really surprised when, you know, as I was researching our interview, that Ukraine was the industrial hub of Russia. Would you agree with that statement? Well, Uh, yes. To to some extent, yes. Um, You know, Russia, of course, before the communist revolution, you said started in 1900, the revolution's only in 1917. Before the communist revolution, Russia was an empire um, with its headquarters in St. Petersburg and Moscow. But it had these outlying regions that were in the western part of the empire, Belarus in the northern part and Ukraine in the southern part. And they were provinces. And at this point in time, identities, that is to say, not all people living there knew or understood quite correctly they were Ukrainian or or Belarusian, or even Russian for that matter. The identities were fluid because this was an imperial identity. You could have localized languages, localized religions, and localized cultures. But over time, especially after the revolution in 1917, by that time, most of the peoples in these places had been mobilized by intellectuals, by people like professors like me or radio broadcasters like you into their national identities. That is to say, most people living in today's Ukraine understood they were Ukrainian. Most people living in Belarus, they were starting to understand they were Belarusian. They were distinguishing themselves from Russians to the east of them and to Poles to to the west of them. And so by the time of the Russian Revolution, people really understood that they were of different cultures, they spoke different languages, but the Soviets, that is to say, the new communist leaders in Moscow, they said, that's okay, you can have your own localized identities, but all within the Soviet Union itself. And so we're gonna have these borders, we're gonna draw borders. And those borders, of course, within the communist Soviet Union, They existed, but they were meaningless because the whole thing was run by a giant communist party and a secret police. But locally, at any rate, you had Ukrainian-speaking people in Kiev who were running the show for the most part, and you had Belarusian-speaking people in Minsk who were running the Belarusian portion of the the Soviet Union. And that pretty much bumbled along with lots lots of hiccups that we can talk about until communism collapses in 1991. Along the way, there was, of course, industrialization in the Soviet Union, which, as you know, right, was heavily uh, concentrated in a couple of areas. And one of those areas 
was in the eastern part of today's Ukraine, what is called the Donbass, the Donetsk Basin. But in industrializing, they had to get capital. They needed money. And the only way they could get that money is they had to take grain from the peasants and sell it to the West. In return, they could buy industrial goods. They had to buy the machines that would make the machines, if you will. And they took so much grain, they requisitioned so much grain from Ukrainian peasants that they caused a gigantic famine in 1932-33 that killed millions of Ukrainians. How many millions, we still don't know, but it was millions of Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians call that episode the Holodomor, the death by hunger, which they term a genocide. The Russians continue to deny that was a genocide. They say, well, look, it wasn't really meant at Ukrainians, the Russians say, because other people died too. The Ukrainians say, well, that may be true, but you were especially punitive on our territories. So to this day, the memory in central Ukraine is of a brutal Soviet rule and industrialization at gigantic human cost, at the cost of millions of lives. But industrialized, they did. And that takes us right up to World War II. That's also a very important memory in all three of these places. Keep going. Okay. If you cut me off when you think I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm no, 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 no. Hey, Jeff, why don't you just hang on for a second? I'll update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to UCI Conversations, I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. And my guest today is UCI political science professor, Jeff Kopstein. And he's a student of the Ukraine, Russia, Belarus area, has been doing that for over 30 years. And he's sharing his expertise with us today. And we got to know him a little bit. And now we're just learning about what was going on during World War II in this area. So go ahead, Jeff. Sure. In the run-up to World War II, what's really important is that the Ukrainian people were kind of divided between what was the Soviet Union, where you had Soviet Ukraine, and then in the eastern part of Poland, it was heavily Ukrainian, in fact, majority Ukrainian. And they were also unhappy there. But in that area of Poland, they were more free to mobilize. And in that area, a local organization called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, they formed Um, They formed actually in 1929 in in Vienna. And ultimately, the Germans, the Nazis, when they took power, they went to this organization of Ukrainian nationalists and they said, look, we know you want your own country and we're happy to help you get that. We're going to invade the Soviet Union. We want you to invade with us and we're going to train you. German military intelligence armed the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians invaded the Soviet Union with the Germans on June 22nd, 1941. And within a week, The Jews of Ukraine were being slaughtered by Germans and by their Ukrainian helpers. The Germans betrayed the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, who was headed up by a guy named Stepan Bandera. And Bandera, after his organization committed these atrocities, he was actually put in a German concentration camp. He survives the war, and his organization survives. And after World War II, they fight the Soviets who had taken over all of Ukraine, including not only the area that they had before World War II, but what was Polish Ukraine, they took over that area. And the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, who at this time were now called the Ukrainian insurgent army, were funded by the Americans, by the CIA. And they ended up fighting the Soviets until the 1950s in the woods. They fought quite heroically. That is to say, Ukrainian national memory looks back upon these guys who first were in favor of an independent Ukraine. Secondly, 
after being promised an independent Ukraine could help the Germans commit a genocide. Thirdly, then fought the Soviets quite bravely and lost. The Soviets ultimately take that whole area until the Soviet Union collapses in 1991. And it collapses along the lines of the borders of the Soviet Union itself, that is the Ukrainian Soviet Republic becomes its own country, huge country. I think it may be the second largest country in Europe, if I remember correctly, with 44 million people living in it. It's not small. Right. And from get-go, the Russians, when they were now had their own country, Russia, they looked at Ukraine and they said, now hold on a minute. And they looked at Belarus. And they said, now, hold on a minute. This is, this is really, the Soviet Union was one thing, but the idea that we're going to give away right. this entire empire, right? That right. really doesn't make sense to us, especially since we believe that the Ukrainians, most of whom actually can handle Russian very well, right? All, mm -hmm. Almost all Ukrainians can speak Russian very well. Mm -hmm. Some Russians speak, some Ukrainians, in fact, speak it as their native tongue even though they consider themselves Ukrainians. That is, they're Russophone Ukrainians. And that's in the eastern part of the country. So the Russians looked upon Ukraine as a country deeply divided linguistically that they perhaps could take advantage of it in order at one point in time either to dominate politically or to reintegrate into Russia. And sometimes their words for Ukraine here you have to know a little bit of Russian. When you say in Ukraine, remember we used to say in the Ukraine? But the is Ukrainians consider to be pejorative because that connotes an, a region of mm. Russia as opposed to a separate country in the mm. Ukraine, as if we'd say in the United States, in the Midwest, mm -hmm. right? right? Yes. Or in the South, mm. right? Mm. And in Russian, you, Ukraine means, means on the border of, on the edge of. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Russians will say, no, this is actually in a, a frontier area of Russia. Not all Russians said that, but many did. And they didn't take the Ukrainian nation building project very seriously. Even less so did they take the Belarusian um, nation building project, which had happened even later. And so that was the situation you had as the Soviet Union disintegrated, which seemed to kind of sizzle along during the 1990s, as Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia until Putin comes to power. And then things get more serious. When do you first start hearing about this man, Putin? Do you remember that? Yeah, or? I remember, um, well, Putin's career, he's essentially started off as a kind of lower class kid from Leningrad, which is today known as St. Petersburg. He was a lower class kid hanging out in the streets. And the best thing that ever happened to, his, to him in his life is, and he said this from very early on, is he wanted to be in the KGB. Because he had read and see, read all these kind of, you know, tales of daring do of great KGB officers during World War II against the Nazis. And he wanted to be one of those. And he gets absorbed into that. And he was placed, his, the peak of his career as a KGB officer came when he was placed in uh, Dresden in East Germany as a KGB officer. And his German is actually quite good. My German's good too. And I've heard him speak German and, and it, it's excellent, right? Mm. He's given speeches in German. He can hang out with Germans and do quite well. Mm. And he served there until 1989 when, of course, communism collapses in East Germany. 
And there's stories of him burning documents in the Dresden consulate, at the Dresden Residentura, the, the, the KGB headquarters in Dresden, burning important documents. And he has to essentially leave. He leaves and goes back to Leningrad and St. Petersburg, the same city, where he um, goes to work for, and here's the big change, he gets involved in politics. He goes to work for the liberal mayor of St. Petersburg. He runs security for him. And in doing so, and here's where things get a bit murky, he's able to enrich himself. And that's largely through export and import licenses for raw materials and the importation of goods that the Russians were getting from the West. And he becomes wealthier. And at one point then he's drawn into, and here is where my memory is a slightly murky, he gets drawn into the Moscow government into the central government, first into the security apparatus, what is the successor to the KGB, and then eventually into, he becomes a little-known guy with not a lot of baggage, he becomes prime minister, right? And that is a big deal. That's the number two person in charge of Russia, as Yeltsin is still president. Yeltsin mm. is getting sicker. That's right. He's suffering from, uh, he is, he's an alcoholic. He's suffering from all kinds of illnesses having to do with alcoholism, heart problems, circulation problems. And um, at that point, and Yeltsin, who's, there's a lot of corruption in Russia, and there's a deal that's made. Putin will become president. Will be, Yeltsin will endorse him to be president and he'll become president. And in return, in return, Putin will agree not to press charges for the corruption surrounding Yeltsin and his family and the distributional beneficiaries in the society at large, these people who we now call oligarchs, people who benefited from privatization of Soviet assets, mostly raw materials, things to do with like oil, timber, diamonds, um, and of course, banking. And he agreed to become president and not do anything about that. But when he became president, he circled around himself, all his old buddies, from his uh, KGB days. So that's when you brought what the Russians call the Siloviki, the uh, power ministries. Um, they all became populated with Putin's old buddies from his um, KGB days. And gotcha. so at first we didn't know what would happen with Putin, but maybe I should stop there. I don't know what direction you want to go in. You know, I'm open. You know, we're just trying to get a sense of how we got to this place. Um, Maybe it's worth circling back a little bit because we, okay. at this time, you get both now a newly independent Ukraine and a newly independent. And they're trying to build their connections in the outside world. Hmm. Ukraine wavers between a pro-Russian orientation and a pro-EU orientation. And hmm. various Ukrainian presidents go back and forth. The Russians are trying to back their horses. And the, the, the Americans in the West are trying to back their horses. Mm. Belarus is kind of an interesting story because Belarus did initially start off in the early 90s with a Western orientation. And then eventually a hardline former communist, former collective farm chairman named Alexander Lukashenko, he takes over and he sidles up very closely to the Russians. He was known as the last dictator in Europe. Now, he's still in power to this day. It's very interesting. He's, in he's Belarus. Never, he's still in power. He's still mm, the president of Belarus. Gotcha. And just to give you some idea that Belarus secret police is still called the KGB. 
I had a very interesting story there. Two years ago, I got to um, my grandfather's from a, a small town in Belarus near the, near what is today's the Polish border and called Nova Grudek. There's a couple of things that that town is known for. And I always wanted to visit it since I speak Russian. I figured everybody there speaks Russian perfectly well. And I, I wanted to go visit. Um, so um, the only person that you might have heard of that me who has roots there is Jared Kushner. His family is also from there. Mm. And his mother, Ray Kushner, um, is a Holocaust survivor, his grandmother, and survived by tunneling out of the ghetto into the woods where they joined one of the only Jewish partisan bands called the Belsky Brothers. You may have seen the movie Defiance with Daniel Craig. Um, and it's about a group of Jewish partisans um, who fight the Nazis and end up saving in the woods, in the swamps, and living in, in mud huts. And they end up, this is germane to the, what I'm about to tell you, because they end up fighting for years. And, uh, and there were not only Jewish partisans, there were also Belarusian, Russian, Soviet partisans in the woods there. And they fight for years, and the, the Belsky brothers end up saving about a thousand Jews. And that's why there's so many descendants of that small town still alive today. But the Belarusian, what, what Lukashenko, President Lukashenko did was something very smart. He said, we're going to build our new national identity, which is otherwise pretty uncertain, like what distinguishes us from anybody else. And they call themselves the partisan republic. That is to say, they not partisan in the US sense of Republican and Democrat, but partisans in the sense of guerrilla fighters, right? Yeah. They fought against the Nazis and they define World War II as their defining experience, right? It's the defining experience, but it's anti-Nazi, anti-fascist. And in that, that drew them closer to Putin because over time, the World War II experience in Russia, as Russia itself was searching for a new identity mm. after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it could no longer be communist. The Russians themselves, became more and more interested, more and more invested in their own World War II experience. And this was defining. Hmm. But here we get to the nub of the matter. The Ukrainians were slightly divided on this question. In the Western part of Ukraine, the part that was before World War II Poland, where the organization of Ukrainian nationalists had come from, they were deeply nationalists and they, many of them had been that, and some of them had been Nazi collaborators, the leaders. And in those towns, you have statues and street names of these former Nazi collaborators, right? As national heroes, because remember, they ended up fighting in the woods against the Soviets mm. all those years. In the eastern part of the country, they were more embarrassed by not so much anti these former Nazi collaborators, but embarrassed by them. And they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so the country was divided along those lines. And so today, when President Putin of Russia refers to one of the war aims in Ukraine as denazification, what he's talking about, right? Well, it's, it's, what he's talking about is slightly crazy, but one of the things he's talking about is the kind of getting rid of that memory of Ukrainian independence, getting rid of all of that completely, because in his mind and in the mind of some Russians, that's tied up with what had happened during World War II. Now, needless to say, nothing that had happened during World War II and nothing that has been said since World War II or the, the, the veneration 
of these old Ukrainian collaborationist figures. None of this in the least bit justifies the Russian invasion mm. of Ukraine. This all could have been handled at the level of culture, the way we do things in the United States, for example, the way we deal with Confederate memorials or, 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 or base names that we don't want. We talk about it, we argue about it, right? And that's what had been going on. They'd been talking about it and arguing about it for years. Nor does the treatment of Ukrainians, of Russian speakers, although sometimes all, not all Russian speakers were happy with their treatment within Ukraine, none of that in the least bit rises to the level of a human rights abuse or justifies any Russian invasion. In fact, most Russian speakers in Ukraine, the vast majority are, are, are horrified by this and they're completely against the Russian invasion. But I wanna give you a feel for how complicated this history is. <laughs> It's truly complicated, but I'm trying to give you it in a, in a, in a fairly simplified, you know, a, an understandable manner. And I think it's, it's, it's worth understanding. It makes kind of legible what Putin appears to be saying, right? It makes it not, a, not justifiable in the least, but at least you can understand the idiom in which he's speaking. Right. Excuse me, just one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is an expert in the topic of the day, Ukraine, Russia and Belarus, Professor Jeff Kopstein. And we've just traced Ukraine back to the Nazi days of when there were different sides in different areas. So. What happens? Is it too fast to move to 2014 when Russians invade Crimea? It is. It's a little too fast. Okay, please continue the story. Well, there's another aspect to what the Russians are saying that you have to wrap your head around. I prefaced it already by saying that the Russians were willing to live with an independent Ukraine as long as, for a while at any rate, as long as the leader in Ukraine was a Russian client or at least would, because the, the Ukraine's one of its largest um, sources of revenue is the movement of natural gas and energy over its soil into Western Europe. Mm. And people who had become rich in Ukraine had become rich through many of the people, not all of them, but many had become rich by way of energy monopolies moving mm. through their country. Well, right. literally going from Russia and just through Ukraine to Poland and yeah, by pipelines. Wow. Um, wow. And the Russians were, were okay with this because, especially because these people, these rich oligarchs, many of them were dependent on Russia. They were not hostile to Russia. Mm. They were friendly towards Russia and Russia was okay with them. But what they were, was very important was that all leaders in Kiev, all presidents would take this deal, which was essentially a corrupt deal, and keep on going with it. Various governments over time, some were more pro-Western, some were more pro-Russian, but all of them were kind of taking this deal. And what had happened is that back in 2014, well, back actually back in 2008, at a NATO meeting in Bucharest, this was under President Bush, President George, um, George W. Bush, um, there was an offer put on the table that under the right conditions, Ukraine and Georgia could join NATO. Now, this was not made for, the, NATO had already been enlarging. The mm. former Soviet satellites of Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, 
Romania, Bulgaria, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania had all joined. And Putin had already become quite bellicose the year earlier vis-a-vis the West. And the idea was that perhaps it would be good if these other countries, which were not simply satellite countries of the Soviet Union, which, which had been part of the Soviet Union, Ukraine and Georgia, would have the prospect open of NATO membership. NATO has in its doctrine what's called an open door policy. Anybody can join. You have to join under the right conditions. You have to meet certain criteria, but then you could join. This was only a half valid offer. It was unclear whether the rest of NATO members even wanted this to happen. And then it was quickly sort of withdrawn as a kind of a prospect. But at that time, the Russians sort of freaked out. So that's act number one. Mm -hmm. Act number two, a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine, a guy named Yanukovych, he was in the face of mass street demonstrations. He was tossed out of office, he left office, he resigned and and escaped, absconded um, to Russia itself. And he was replaced in a national election with a leader that who was much more friendly towards the West. And in fact, in the meantime, right, the EU had already, the European Union had already opened up the prospect for perhaps there could be an association agreement, which might at some point, if all the EU members Agreed. And if Ukraine passed, this is what's interesting about the EU, all um, 88,000 pages of EU legislation into its own national legislation, which is not easy to do, then they might be eligible for membership. And the new president of Ukraine, the guy's name was Poroshenko, he was favorable towards this. And at that point, this is back in 2014, at that point, the Russians decided, Putin and his the circle decided around him that this entire unseating of Yanukovych and the new pro-Western leadership of Ukraine, this was all an American plot. This was an American plot and NATO enlargement was all part of this. And so what they decided to do next is they took a, they did two things. First of all, there's a piece of Ukraine that during the communist era had earlier been part of Russia, but because borders didn't matter during the communist era, they had given this area called Crimea, which is a huge area. It looks small on the map when you look at it from far away, but it's gigantic. And they had, take, they had taken this area under the communist, and uh, this was under Nikita Khrushchev in the 50s, 1950s, and he gave that to Ukraine. Now, what did it even mean to give? It meant nothing. The borders were meaningless. It was all run by the KGB. But... Once they were independent, this had become part of Ukraine. And the Russians weren't happy about that because this is where their Black Sea fleet was. There was an agreement that the Ukrainians had agreed to, to let, let the Russians run their Black Sea fleet from there. And from there, you can get out, if you know the geography, past Turkey through the Dardanelles and get boats out to the high seas. This is a warm water port. The Ukrainians and the Russians had sort of an agreement that the Russians would get to keep their fleet there, even though it was Ukrainian territory. At that point in 2014, Putin launches an invasion of Crimea mm. and took it over. Now, this was what they called hybrid warfare. I don't know if you remember back from the present time, those little green men. It was like Russians in very beautifully armed and beautiful uniforms without insignia. They were unmarked. Mm. The idea that, oh, this was just locals who were doing this. This was like, yeah, we don't know who's doing this, but you know, 
it was mostly Russians living there. And it is true, there are a, a lot of Russians living there and the population itself was very pro-Russian because it's ultimately one giant military base. And they held a referendum. Now this referendum was held under military rule and Putin's command saying, we wanna become part of Russia. We wanna secede from Ukraine and be part of Russia and Russia accepted them. So now they're part of Russia, a move that the world, the global community does not accept. So that's act number two. Act number three is in the Eastern part of Ukraine. There were also local clients of Russian clients who were largely Russian speaking. This is in Donetsk and Luhansk, right? Which, is, which are part of Ukraine, but they're heavily Russian speaking areas, but they're mm-hmm. very Ukrainian. They also declared, separatists declared, we wish, to, we, we wish to declare our separation from Ukraine and the Russians sent in soldiers and military equipment to help them. And so since 2014, there's been an on again, off again fight between the government in Kiev and these breakaway republics, which are which are kind of stoked by, by Moscow, by Putin in mm. Moscow. Mm. And there's been various attempts to mediate that conflict. There were two, and these were the Minsk agreements. And the idea was that they would get to stay inside Ukraine, but there would be a referendum on autonomy. Neither side really fulfilled their obligations toward this. And you can understand why, because the Ukrainians believed there's no way that the Russians are going to allow this to be fair. And the Russians believed there was no way they should allow this to be part of Ukraine. And so those areas today, that's now that brings us up to February 24th. Now, in the meantime, a new Ukrainian president had been elected. And here's where things get super duper interesting. A new Ukrainian president had been elected, um, a guy named Volodymyr Zelensky. And what's interesting for this country that Putin, in referring to that former Nazi collaborationist past, is referring to a bunch of Nazis. The thing you have to understand about Zelensky is Zelensky, the president of Ukraine today, is Jewish. He's not only Jewish, he's a Jewish comedian. It's almost like a stereotype of a Jew, right? Now I say that as I'm Jewish myself. You have to understand how quite remarkable this is. Not only that, he's very patriotically Ukrainian, very much so. And the calling the Ukrainians Nazis is kind of wild considering their president is, is Jewish. Their prime minister, not the current one, but a past one has been Jewish. And the Nazi party, there is a Nazi party. There are neo-Nazis everywhere in the world, including Kevin, as you'll know, the United States. Mm. And they only got 2% of the vote in the last election for Nazis. Mm. So they don't do very well. And so in the meantime, Zelensky has been elected. An invasion starts on the 24th. And the Russians really expected, they genuinely expected that his government would fall quickly, that it would just collapse, right? Because of corruption, because they weren't really committed to their own state, because the country was divided. And indeed, there was plans, we now know, to get Zelensky out of there. The Americans were gonna evacuate him and who knew? Nobody knew that this guy this guy had a, had a real backbone. He said, I don't want to ride, I want some weapons. I want right. to fight. Right. I, don't, I don't need a ride, I need weapons. Right. And so the Ukrainians have been fighting, right? With some Western assistance, but a lot of, but no matter, as we know from Afghanistan, no matter how much assistance you get, if you don't want to fight, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. And it appears that they really do want to fight. And there we are. Right? We are in this very odd situation of the Russian 
attempted invasion and decapitation of the Ukrainian government, the attempted assassination of Zelensky, President Zelensky, it failed. The move down from the from Belarus, they had, they had taken 190,000 troops and moved it into Belarus, moved them into Belarus. People forget about that. Belarus is now a Russian-occupied country as well. And they invaded from the north into Ukraine and that trying to capture Kiev. And that failed. It completely failed. I mean, it right. was a it was a it was a huge battle in which the Russians committed some horrible atrocities, right. but it failed. And now they appear to have moved their soldiers back to those eastern territories. Mm that they had tried to create separatist regions for in back in 2014. And that's where things now stand. Do you have any sense of what Putin's thinking now? I mean, is it just to save face and- uh, Yeah, I mean, no, I, I have no idea what Putin, yeah. I'll be honest. I, yeah. I really don't know what, and I don't think anybody does. Right. I mean, there's this idea that on the one hand, I mean, this, you know, I'll just, I'll just tell you what the discussions are mm. among kind of yeah. my friends who are specialists in the region, uh, my, my friends in DC, my friends all over the United States who are mm. specialists in the region. On the one hand, the idea is that, well, perhaps Putin needs some sort of off-ramp, right? So mm. how can we get him out of there? Um, and so one of the, one of the things that's sometimes discussed is, you know, saying, okay, you can keep Crimea. Right. And go. But that would clearly be a loss. I mean, he'd have his tail between his legs. And the question is, could Putin himself survive as a leader in Russia? In effect, whenever he could declare victory. But everybody knows that would be a gigantic defeat because that was the status quo ante. Right. The status before February 24th. That's what they had. What's more, it does not appear. I mean, that Zelensky, who justifiably does not want to see his own people getting killed. But does he have the right at this point to give up Ukrainian territory in return for peace? And so those two things, there does not appear to, Putin does not appear to be interested yet in negotiation. The negotiations have kind of broken down. There's a couple of, my understanding is a couple of Zoom meetings have been held, but no real serious negotiations yet. It's not even clear whether the Russian negotiators have any power to, 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 um, um, any authority to make right. any deals. Right. So at this point, the Americans have decided, and the rest of the Europeans appear to be going along with this, to both try to cripple the Russian economy by not buying the only thing they have to sell and to, and to sequester their, that is energy resources, and to sequester their money uh, that's, that's sitting in the West on the one hand, and to arm the Ukrainians on the other hand, without actually, as long as they want to fight, with weapons that will allow themselves to do so without actually getting on the ground ourselves or, and here comes the big or, without provoking a nuclear war, <laughs> which, the, which un, unfortunately the Russian leadership in the last several days, and it's been on television too, have repeatedly talked about you know, the hypothetical prospect of using nuclear weapons, like the wiping out of, I just saw a report on, on their version of the nightly news, um, you know, you know, exploding a, a hundred megaton nuclear weapon underwater off the coast of England, which would create a giant tsunami and a giant radioactive tsunami that would wipe out England. And they had an entire graphic showing this on their what? national nightly on, news. You're kidding. 
Wow. Yeah. I, and so this was, you know, I mean, that's that's disturbing. And yeah. President Biden has justifiably said this is kind of an irresponsible rhetoric. It's hard to know what to make of all of this, though, that the Russian leaders would actually do such a thing or whether they would, you know, if things started going very badly in Ukraine. Would they use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? And what would we do if they used nuclear weapons in Ukraine? And these are all questions I don't have any great answers for. You know, this is what the must be keeping the people in the Pentagon up at night. And of course, not to mention the rest of Europe. And, and, and if there's even more than that. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Ukrainian-Russian political science expert, Professor Jeff Kopstein, talking about what is at stake. Now back to the interview. There are current members of NATO, which border Ukraine, several. Um, and under um, you, NATO is essentially the core feature of NATO is something called, called Article 5. Um, well, the core feature of NATO is keeping American troops in Europe. But the Article 5 of the, of, of the treaty says that if any country is attacked, it has the right to ask for and demand the assistance from the other treaty signatories. And that is to say, if not, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. But if, um, if Poland were attacked, if the Baltic states, remember half of Poland was also part of the Russian empire. The Russians are thinking in imperial terms. Before World War I, Warsaw was part of the Russian empire, right? Uh, the capital of Poland. Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania were part of the Russian Empire. Finland was part of the Russian Empire. And wow. I so didn't realize Finland was. Finland was. And uh, we'll get to that in one second. But if, if any of the reasons, one of the reasons that's discussed for why this has to be stopped in Ukraine is that do you really want to put Article 5 to a test? What I mean by putting Article 5 to a test is the following. If Estonia is attacked, they would, could demand that the rest of NATO come to their defense. That would mean that Americans would be sending their boys to defend Estonia against Russians, toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Russians. And do, you want to do you want to test that proposition that we'd actually do that? And how confident would Estonia be? They might be confident that Biden would do, that President Biden would do that. Well, how about under a second Trump term? Would they be equally as confident? I doubt it. I doubt that they would would um, trust an American, American security guarantee. Where's Estonia again? Estonia is in the north. It's up by, in, on the Baltic Sea. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania oh, are okay. northeast of, of, of Poland. Okay. And Finland, interestingly, is, is neutral. Hmm. Sweden is neutral. And there is an expectation over the next month that both of those countries will ask for membership in NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is the, the main security and defense organization in Europe, which they'd stayed out of all this time. So Putin has succeeded not only in creating a unified and quite belligerent Ukraine, he succeeded in taking these uh, neutral countries and wanting them to join NATO. Right. Um, and it's really quite something. It's 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 it's. You know, it's disturbing from the standpoint of European security, um, but that's where things stand. The stakes could not be higher. Americans, we can sit over here right now and feel very secure because we have friends in the north, friends in the south, fish in the east and fish in the west. But the entire global order right now is up for grabs. It hangs in the balance because what Putin wants more than anything else, what he wants is a world of Putin's. He wants a world of other Putins. That's why he liked Donald Trump and Donald Trump liked him, by the way. What he wants is another Putin in Ukraine. 
he has his Putin in Belarus right now, in Alexander Lukashenko. He has a Putin in Hungary, who's still for the time being a member of NATO and the European Union. He likes these patrimonial strongmen who run countries where they see themselves as the father of the nation and the state as the personal embodiment of their own kind of property. This is the world that he would like. This is the international relations that he would like. The Americans are under Biden and, and Tony Blinken are trying to reassert the kind of global institutional order. So the Americans have been trying slowly, quietly over the last year to build the transatlantic alliance, which has been brought into question. But if you're in a European, if you're a European and you worry that in 2024, well, what if, what if someone comes to power in the United States who Trump said we want to be out of NATO? Trump had a two-hour meeting with Putin in Helsinki where nobody was in the room. We have no idea what was discussed. We still don't know to this day what was discussed, right? So if you're a European, you know all of that. You have to be a bit nervous. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> Where shall we go next? I know. We have a few more minutes. Is there anything? Well, I, let, me, let, me, let me give some silver linings. Please. Yeah, because this is kind of gloomy, a lot more complex than I dreamed and yeah. kind of gloomy. It's kind of gloomy. So there, there's a couple of things. One is that since the mask has fallen off Putin, we were really unsure exactly what Putin wanted. We're no yeah. longer unsure. Yeah. We now know. We now know that there's a fundamental challenge to the global institutional order. Mm. We now know that the enemy is liberal democracy and indeed the impersonal institutions of modernity that have made our world safe, wealthy, and secure, mm. and predictable in many ways. And he would like to get rid of all of those. And so in some ways, this has re-solidified the resolve, our understanding of what we're all about, right? And one of the interesting things, I don't know if you've noticed that I have, um, I live in a neighborhood in which there's been, um, I don't live on campus, but I, there's a, um, I live in a neighborhood in which there are there have been Trump signs and there have been Biden signs during the election. What is interesting, under many of those homes now, both Republican and Democratic, there are um, um, Ukrainian flags, mm. the yellow and blue flags. That has appeared to bridge the divide to some extent between the otherwise very petty culture wars of American politics, right? Discussions of, of you know, kind of not very important things. That, are, that tend to dominate American politics for reasons I don't fully understand. And I think that this, people have started to understand. So when there's a bill that's coming up before Congress that Biden's asking for $33 billion for military and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine, my sense is it's gonna pass quite easily in a, on a bipartisan basis. And that tells you that this issue has brought, I didn't think there was anything that could bridge the partisan divides in the United States. And this issue has more or less done that. It's also, of course, brought the Europeans closer together. Um, the Europeans now understand more keenly than ever that there is, a, there is someone out there, if not as a kind of a genuine threat tomorrow, um, who under the right circumstances could pose a threat. Um, and I think, so the silver lining is that liberal democracy may have found its footing, or at least mm. partially found its footing again. And that may be the ultimate legacy. We may be seeing here the kind of last gasp of this global patrimonial order 
that Putin and Trump and others like them had tried to impose right, as, over the last 15 years. And it's, it appears to be sputtering to an end and hopefully humanity will survive that last bit of sputtering. Mm. Is it possible to see from the outside Putin's stability? Like, you know, is there any possibility that he could be ousted? There is. Um, you know, the one thing you can say, I mean, it's not, it's not all that like, okay, two things I'll say. Mm. It would be difficult. He spent a lot of time building personal security up. Uh, and including people who benefit from his rule. I'd also like to say that were he replaced, there's no guarantee that he'd be replaced by anybody better. Mm. He could be replaced by somebody even worse. Mm. There, there, there are rumors that he's sick, right? That he's not well. Mm. Um, and I saw more of that today, but I don't know what to make of it. And I don't think I want to be you know, yeah. victim of some kind of counter propaganda from somewhere. So I hesitate to give any of those rumors credence, but there are still people within Russia, incredibly brave, who continue to issue videos, tweets, um, saying this war is bad, this war should be stopped. Most importantly, his chief opponent, who's in prison, a guy named Alexander Navalny. And Navalny has exposed huge amounts of corruption within Russia, and, he, and Putin's secret police attempted to poison him. And then he went away to Germany and felt got better, got healed, and then decided he was going to return to Russia. And he was arrested at the airport and sentenced. Now he's, I think, been sentenced to something crazy, 16 years in jail for no reason. But he continues through intermediaries. I don't know how he's doing this to issue long tweet threads opposing the war. Right. So there is that element in Russia, but we just don't have. It's very hard to conduct good public opinion polls. We know from internationally, that whenever a country goes to war, and you'll remember back to the various Gulf Wars that we had, that there's a rally around the flag effect. People tend to support their leaders, at least at the beginning during a war. Mm -hmm. Russia has not yet gone to, here, not yet gone to a general mobilization of their population. Mm -hmm. They're still using, you know, some recruits in Ukraine, but they're not doing very well. And those recruits are kind of getting tired and the equipment's getting tired. And should they go to a general mobilization? At that point, you'd have to mobilize the children of the elite, or at least the middle classes of St. Petersburg and Moscow. And at that point, the war might become unpopular. Gotcha. That's not to say that Russia still couldn't win. They're, it's very, very close to them. They care a lot about this. They care about this area a lot. They may care about it for bad reasons. But they, they seem to view, at least the Putin's leadership seems to view this as very important, identity-defining for them. They want it. But if, if the price becomes high enough, right, maybe somebody will begin to say in Putin's leadership, look, this is just too much. Yeah. I can't predict. I mean, Putin, you know, clearly he's worried. He sits those those tables. If you ever watched the videos, he sits in these tables in the Kremlin that appear to be 20 yards right. from the next person. Right. Um, he's very worried about exposing himself. We don't know to what, to COVID, mm. to assassination. We don't know, mm. right? You know, uh, since Plato, Plato's Republic, the mm. Greek philosopher said the tyrant has no true friends. And this is true in this case too. Putin must be wondering who are his friends. The, the stab in the back usually comes from somebody, we've seen the Godfather, usually comes from somebody you trust. Yeah. Um, and so he's, pro he's probably very worried about Oh, wow. Well, Professor Jeff Kopstein, thank you so much for this amazing journey. It was lively, rigorous and surprising. So thank you.
Thank you for having me on. Thank you again to UCI political science professor Jeff Kopstein for sharing his expertise about Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. Professor Kopstein has studied well. The nuances about this crisis are sobering and potentially very serious, even catastrophic. I hope our leaders are up to the task. I will reach back out to Professor Kopstein as things develop. Thank you, Professor. And now turning the page here at KUCI, at the top of the hour is Oswaldo Diaz's Spanish-speaking show, 30 Minutes of Mindfulness. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. For an encore rebroadcast of this show with Professor Kopstein or any of my past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bostonmeyer.com, which is available 24-7 via the Internet. Comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at KUCI.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer. It continues to be my pleasure to meet, greet, and get to know some of the amazing people here at UCI. I'm humbled, challenged, and inspired. Keep up the great work, everybody. I can't wait to find you. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. So long, Annie. I'll see you next week. Happy trails. Here's Side Pocket. Play it, Fred Kaplan. <laughs>